0: There, for those of you who are visiting, we are in the Psalms for this summer, each summer we take about three months and we go through the Psalms, and we're up to Psalm 30. The first thing you'll notice is there is a superscription, which is a title that is assigned to the psalm, and the superscription says, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of David. Now you may have another title over top of that that doesn't really count. Your publisher put that in there. Okay? But the one that says a song, a song at the dedication of the house of David is what we call a superscription and that was put in, you know, 2000 years ago. 3000 years ago. Now, notice that this psalm is called number 1 and that superscription is called a song. So this is something that was to be sung. It was to be sung, notice this, at a dedication service. Do you see that? And it was to be sung at the dedication of the house of David. Now here's the question. What house is this? What house is being dedicated? And the way you answer that is you have to determine when this superscription was added to the psalm. If David wrote the superscription, if he put that down, Then the dedication is David's house, where he lives, his residence, because the temple had not yet been built. The temple wasn't built until Solomon built the temple. That was David's son. So if this is to be read at a dedication, and David wrote the superscription, it's when he dedicates his own house. Some of you, when you buy a new house, you invite some people in, you have an open house, maybe you have preacher there, and you pray of a dedication. So this could be that situation. However, if this was put in later, the superscription was added later, then it's referring to the dedication of God's house. Okay, And uh, maybe when Solomon dedicated the house of God, uh, they sang this particular psalm that David wrote. We do know something <coughs> which is very interesting in history for you, history folks. Uh, we know that this song. This psalm, Psalm 30, was sung by the Maccabeans. After Antiochus' Epiphany, the evil dictator desecrated the temple in 164. The Maccabeans, you know, revolted against the Syrian Empire, regained Jerusalem, and cleansed the temple. And they had a great dedication service of that temple. And they sang this psalm, that dedication service. That was the beginning of the holiday we call Hanukkah. That's how Hanukkah was begun. And Jews have sung this psalm at Hanukkah services that recognized the temple was dedicated to God for years. Does that make sense? So we're not sure which house this is, but... You need to understand that context, and also what you need to understand is that when David writes this psalm, uh, he is reflecting on an event in his life which we would call a near-death experience. He's been uh, on his back right at the point of death, and God has brought him out of it, and he writes this psalm. Now, why we would sing a psalm about a near-death experience at a dedication service, there's no answer to that. Why would you choose that, the sing of the dedication service? Okay, so here's how we're going to divide the sum. In verses 1 through 5, we're going to call this David's praise for being healed. He praises God for his healing, verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 through 10, he analyzes his sickness. Why was he sick in the first place? He tells us that. And then verses 11 and 12, the result of his healing. Now he begins to praise God because God did hear his prayer and healed him. So that's how we're going to do it. Three little sections. Look at at section number one. Praise for healing. Look at verse number one. David says, I will extol you, O Lord. It means I will exalt you. I will brag on you. I will raise your name to the heavens. Uh, I will praise the Lord. That's what he says he's going to do. Now he tells us why he will do it. Look in verse one. For, because, number one, you lifted me up. This is what God did for him. Lifted him up from what? From a sick bed. Now the phrase, lifted up, actually referred in this culture to pulling a bucket out of a well. And David sees his near-death experience as being down in a pit. Now he's not literally in a pit. But he's in the pits. You know what I mean? He's physically sick. Too strong, too weak rather, to to get himself up. Lift himself up out of bed. And so God lifts him out of bed. God does for David what he cannot do for himself. And he's restored to health. So he says, I will praise you, Lord, for that. And he's not going to stop praising him. Uh, He was going to die and God raised him up. He says, so I will praise you for that. And, look in verse 1. And, have not, meaning you have not, let my foes rejoice over me. So, one, I'm going to praise you because what you've done, you've lifted me up. And what you have not allowed to happen, you haven't allowed my foes to rejoice over me. See, David's concerned that if he dies, or he's put out a commission, his enemies will rejoice over that. So he's going to praise God because they don't get the opportunity to have the last laugh. Very interesting. You can sort of look into David's psyche, and he's excited because his enemies don't get the last laugh. Some of you have that little streak in you, don't you? <laughs> so he sees this as occasion for, for uh, celebration. Uh, you know, we have this song I was singing deep in sin, you know, far from the peaceful shore. And then he says, uh, when nothing else could help, what? Love lifted me. Up. God lifted me up because of his love. And that's what David sees his situation here. He's physically sick. So now we're going to see the circumstances. He hasn't mentioned that he's sick, but you'll see that that's the problem. Look at verse 2.
1: And,
0: uh, verse 2. Oh, Lord my God, I cried out to you, and you healed me. In this state of desperation, he cries from the depths of his soul, and God heals him. So when, from human perspective, all hope was gone, God reached down and lifted at him up. Now notice the tense of that verse is past tense. Verse 2. I cried, you healed me. See that? In verse 1, it's future tense. I will, I will, I will extol you. So. Uh, Now we're getting into the circumstance of why David now will extol him because in the past I was on my deathbed and I in desperation cried out to God and God did what no human could do. He lifted him off of his sickbed and David gives God the credit. Now look at verse 3. Oh Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. Not his soul in the sense that we think of soul. It just means me. You brought me up from the grave. And some translations say, You brought me up from the pit. Which in this case means grave. From the uh, uh, the door of death, if you want to put it this way. So God has answered David's prayer. And then he says this in verse 3. You have kept me alive. When he was at death's door. That I should not go down to the pit. You've kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit or the grave, which means that I wouldn't die. And so David realizes what God has done, and this is why he uh, is excited. Now, what he does, that's verses 1 through 3. His praise. Why he prays. Now, in verse 4 and 5, he twists the praise a little bit. Look what he says in verse 4. He calls for his people to rejoice. He says this, Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of His, meaning you faithful ones. Sing praises to the Lord, you saints of His, meaning you faithful ones. Now, notice in verse 1, David praises the Lord. Now what does he call for people to do? For them to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord why? Because He's alive. Now watch this. Who was going to praise? Well, they weren't going to praise. Who's going to jump for joy if he died? His foes. He said, well, they were going to celebrate if I died. Guess what I want you to do? Celebrate that I'm alive. So he calls for the whole nation to celebrate that God has raised him from the dead, in a sense. And then he says this to them in verse 4. And give thanks. Here's the content of the praise. Give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name or his holiness. So uh, we see that he wants them to thank the Lord because God is holy, which means God is just. Now, David realizes that he does not deserve this. We don't know why he was sick. Well, we do know a little bit why he's sick. We'll see it in a minute. But what he really deserves is he deserves probably just, if we all got what we deserve, we would get death. Right? But for some reason God has raised him up and he wants them to thank God for his holiness but yet at the same time for his mercy because God despite being a holy God and a just God is also a loving God and a merciful God and God raised him up. And those two characteristics of God God's holiness and God's mercy God's justice and God's love and grace they're they're always in tension. And What we do sometimes is we put an emphasis on one to the exclusion of the other. Sometimes we think of God as a holy and a severe God. And when you do that, you think of God as as this heavenly policeman. He's always out to catch him, give you the ticket. That's how God... And the other side is God is a God of grace and a God of favor and a God of love and a God of mercy. And some of us put the emphasis on that to the exclusion of God's holiness we see God as a sappy God that you can just do whatever you want to get away with. And God is just and at the same time He's loving. Okay? And we need to recognize these things. Now look what he says in verse 5. For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life or for a lifetime. Now God has a right to get angry with us because he's a holy God. David tells the people, thank God for his holiness. Thank God, not only that he raised me up, thank God that he knocked me down. Because God is the one to put David on his back to begin with. And he says, verse 5, because, look, for, you see that word for? For his anger is but for a what? moment. God has a right. He's just when He knocks you on on your back. But I want you to know something about God's holiness and God's justice and when God does that. God can get angry at you. Sometimes God is angry. (coughs) Angry Christians. But His anger is short. You see that in verse 5? His anger is short. It's just for a moment. But what is His favor? What is His grace? That lasts a lifetime. So God can get angry with us, and sometimes He does, and when He does, He's holy and He's just in doing it. But it only lasts for a moment. What lasts a lifetime is His favor toward you. You know, when your kids were disobedient, disrespectful, you may have spanked them. (laughs) But you're not still spanking them, are you? Once you spanked them, the spanking was over. You're not still spanking them. But God, and that's what God does. He puts David on his back for a moment, but one thing God does show the believer is his favor, and he shows that for a lifetime. So Spurgeon was the one who said something along the lines is that God puts up the rod once it's done its work. But sometimes he has to take us to the barn. And he has to use the rod. Okay? But his favor, guess what? lasts forever. Now when you spanked your kids and you were angry, did you still love them? Yes. yes. And that's how God is. Sometimes he has to spank us. Sometimes he's angry. But guess what? Even when he does that, he's right in doing it. And he loves us. And when the spanking's over, he still loves us. He doesn't remain angry with us. And that's a hard concept for us to understand, but that's what he's trying to say here. And then look what he says at the end of verse 5. He says, Weeping may endure for a night. This is one of our famous verses that we hear. This is where it's located. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. See, weeping is short-lived. Night gives way to sunlight. Every day, did you notice that? And the scripture says, in the end times, or actually when the kingdom of God comes on the earth in its fullness, all there is is light. <laughs> all there is is light. And whatever we've been through in this life, all the sufferings that we've been through in this life, just for a moment. Say, morning and night, but joy comes in the morning. Uh, I remember when my kids were little and they would get sick. I hated the night. I hated it when they were sick, and I looked at my watch, and they were getting sick at ten o'clock at night. And then it was eleven, and then it was two, and their fever was going up. You know what I prayed for? Morning. <laughs> I, if I could get through the night, and I could, and I hated it when it was on the weekend. Uh, <laughs> but I I loved the sunlight because the the light gave me hope, and I knew that I could get them to a doctor, I could get help. You know, it's just something about the light. That sort of brightens you up, and it produces joy even in the midst of sickness. But night—that's why we talk about a dark night of the soul. You know. Night is uh, is a time here. David says uh, it was weeping endured for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So what he's basically saying is the discipline was very short-lived. Uh, okay. Well, now let's go to this next section, section two, which is verses ten. 10- 6-10, and here David reflects on the situation. Why he ended up to where he ended up. And this is very interesting to me. Look what he said. Now in my prosperity I said Now he's going to tell you about what happened in the past. In my prosperity I said, I shall never be moved. You know the rule, the principle, Never say never. <laughs> so, here's what we have here is that uh, David is very prosperous. He's become very wealthy, and everything he touches turns <laughs> to gold, and his kingdom is going well, and everything is prospering. But sometimes prosperity is not profitable. Sometimes you can be prosperous and really be going through a difficult time. And David is put on his back because in his prosperity he becomes very careless. And he becomes arrogant. He says, No one can ever move. I'm the king. You know, when I snap my hand, people just jump. You know, they and he just doesn't think that he could be moved. Now, very interesting. Last week we saw that God can move anything, can he? And <laughs> when that storm comes, he can move mountains, he can move trees. Now David wrote psalm 29 and then he writes psalm 30 you would think he would remember his own psalm god can move can move those things god can move me but no what happens is in his prosperity he doesn't think that he can be moved and this lands him on his back because his prosperity leads to arrogance makes him having a feeling that he's invincible in reality it's a it's a false sense of security and uh, we don't know why this happens, but what happens is oftentimes when things are going well, we put God out of our consciousness. We become very careless. And there's a difference between being carefree and being careless. If God's blessed you with great prosperity and wealth, you can be carefree. And that's good, as long as you know who's given it to you. But don't be careless. Don't think, huh, I'm my own person. I'll never be moved. This company will go on forever. Oh yeah? We've seen that happen, haven't we? See? So, that's what's happening here. And David's looking back and he says, I remember saying that and pride just swelled in my heart. And he said, verse 7, he says, Lord, by your favor, you've made my mountain stand strong. Now, this could be a hindsight. The word mountain there probably refers to his kingdom. Uh, he could be saying, now that I'm better, I realize that it was all of you, that you, you're the one that made my mountain strong, my kingdom strong. Or, you know, he may have even recognized it then, before he got sick. He may have realized that it was God who had done all this. But even, even realizing that, because Christians often will give God credit, uh, what happens is that we then become the presumptuous. As if that's how it's going to be forever. And there's a difference between faith and presumption. It's one thing to realize God's blessed you. And you say, oh Lord, you know, I'm just trusting you for every day. I know I, this could all be gone tomorrow. Or you can say, hey, God's blessed me. I'm strong and I'll never be moved. And you become presumptuous. You so we don't know whether he, this is hindsight or whether he actually thought that and he fell into a state of presumption. But I know he's become very careless at this point. But look at the end of verse 7. Look at the result of this attitude. This presumptuous, careless, arrogant, prideful attitude. You hid your face. And I was trying. Boy, things changed overnight. You know what it means when God hides his face? You know, number six, the Lord blessed you. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his what? Face to shine upon thee. When God looks at you and he turns his face to you and he blesses you and shines shines his face upon you, that's blessing. Guess what happens when God hides his face? All gone. (laughs) He can just take it away. All God has to do is just turn his face. Now, one thing that David realized, he realized that God had turned his face away from him. And when God did that, David was troubled. See, this is the difference between a believer and a non-believer. Non-believers don't even know that God's turning his face away from them or he's blessing them. They don't even recognize God. God's not in their consciousness. But David is so conscious of God that when God turns his face away from him and the problems come, David realizes why they come. It's because God is turned his face away from him, and David is troubled over that. The word means afflicted, uh, dismayed. You turned your face, and I was troubled. Now, how was he troubled? We know this. He was troubled with sickness. He's already told us that back in verse 1. But he was at death's door, and so God put him on his back, and so (coughs) he's troubled with sickness. Now look what happens in verse 8. And I cried out to you, O Lord, in desperation, and to the Lord I made supplication. Now isn't it interesting, David came to his senses at this point. Before he said, I'll never be moved. Uh Uh-oh, now he's troubled. He's wavering like that. As soon as that happens, guess what? He knows exactly what he needs to do. He comes to his senses, and what does he do? Cries out to the Lord. He knows the source of his help. And he makes supplication. Pleads, He pleads his case to the Lord. And look how he pleads his case to the Lord. It's very interesting in verse 9. He says this to God. What profit is there in my blood? Now remember, he's on his deathbed. And he says to God, uh, what, uh, will, will anything good come out of me dying? Will there, is there any profit in me dying? And the answer is, no. I wouldn't talk anybody." And then the second question in verse 9. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Is there any profit in that? No. Number two. Will the dust praise you, God? Will the dust praise you? If I go down and I turn to dust, will I still be praised? No. The dust doesn't praise God at all. And then at the end of verse nine. Will it declare your truth? And the answer is No. So in pleading his case, look what David does. He actually formulates an argument, sort of like uh, Tevye in, in Fiddler on the Roof. Remember him? Yeah. Hey Lord, yeah. you know you're rich. You own everything. Couldn't you just give me a little bit? And he starts arguing with God. That's what David did. Hey, if you kill me, is this going to profit anything? Not going to profit anything. if You killing me, God? Well, if that's crazy, well, tell the truth. Now, it's interesting that David is, phrases these sentences in verse 9 in the sense of saying, uh, Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? He says, Lord, if I die, guess what? That's not going to benefit you. He acts like, you know, if you heal me, this is going to benefit you, God. It's a great Jewish argument. So uh, he argues, he pleads his case in this way. And he's honest and he says that's what I have said. So Look at verse 10. Uh, He says, Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. Now we see we go from the holiness part of God's character to the mercy part of God's character. He realized that God was just when he was angry at him and put him on his back. Now he asks for God's loving kindness and his mercy. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Have mercy on me. Be my helper. Hey, boy, he's really changed, hasn't he? Back in that other verse, verse 6, he didn't need any help. I won't be moved. Well, he was moved very quickly and he realizes the situation and he calls out to God for help. He says, Have mercy on me, Lord. Now, notice that and notice Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the publican. The publican comes in, the Pharisee comes in, and he goes, and his prosperity. <coughs> I'm glad I'm not like these people. Publican comes in, only look up and he says, God, be merciful to me a sinner. David, just like that. He's gone from being a Pharisee to a publican overnight. Because God's put him right on the back. Now look at the result of this healing. We come to this last section, verse 11. The result of the healing. You have turned my mourning into dancing. Boy, there's a transformation, isn't it? He was mourning his own death. He thought, I could be dead tomorrow morning. And he was mourning his own death. And now, he's been healed. And guess what he does? He gets up and he does the jig. Old soft shoe. George Smith wants me to do that, but I'm not. But look at this. He's a, he celebrates. He celebrates, and then he says, "You have put off my sackcloth, and you have clothed me with gladness." Old King James says, "You've girded me with gladness." Now that's a tremendous word picture there. Sackcloth was what you put on when you realized that you were in a state of sin, and you were crying out. For repentance and it was that old burlap type stuff and we just put a hole in it and put it right over your shoulders and it just hung loose but clothing you with gladness that word clothed actually means girded that's something that's tied around your waist and a knot put in it and becomes strong so what happens is God has dropped off this temporary garb see weeping is only for a moment The sackcloth drops off. God's heard his prayer. God's going to restore him. And God girds him, which means something that's permanent, with gladness. And his whole demeanor is changed. And he he is very joyful. And this is all God's doing. Do you see that? He said, you've turned me. He said, you've put off the sackcloth. Do you see that? In fact, if you just go back in Psalm 30, you'll see that God does everything. Look at verse 1. You have lifted me up. See? You've not allowed my foes to rejoice. Verse 2. Lord, you healed me. Right in the middle of verse 2. Verse 3. You brought my soul up. See? Look at verse 3. You've kept me alive. See that? Look down at verse 7. By your favor, you made my mountains dance strong. Look at verse 11. You turned my mourning into dancing. Verse 11. You put off the sackcloth and you clothed So, he realizes it's all God's doing. God's the one that knocked him on his back. Got his attention. God's the one that raised him up. And he gives God the credit for all of it. And he says, let's just praise the Lord for all of it. And then look at verse 12. To the end. Here was the goal of all of this. What was the reason for all of this? To the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. So the goal is that David will praise God and not be silent, which indicates that when David, before he got sick and he was arrogant, guess what he was? He was not praising God and he was silent. He was not giving God credit the way God should get the credit. And if God knocked him off and David died, guess what? He would have been silent then he would not been. So because God raised him up, David says, I realize now that I have to give you the praise. And I must never, never be silent. And he says this at the end of verse 12. Oh Lord my God. Look, I'm going to add something. I've learned my lesson. Look at this. I will give thanks to you forever. David makes a vow. He makes a promise. He says this will never happen again. Now does it happen again? I think it probably does happen again. He gets messed up again. But that's not his intention. And so he says, my goal from this point on is just to praise you forever. Now how's that for a leader of a country? Now, what do we learn from this? Well, I've tried to think through this a little bit because the superscription says this is a song that's to be sung in a dedication of a house. Why would you think this <laughs> the dedication of a house? So I tried to think through it and it said about the Maccabean Revolt and the Antiochus Epiphanes, and how he—you know—how Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple. Remember, he required one of the priests back in, you know, the second century B.C. He required them to uh, sacrifice a pig on the altar. And that's what caused the Maccabean Revolt. The Jews rebelled against that. He desecrated the holy place. And uh, so they fight and they win. The Jews win. They cleanse the temple and they dedicate it. So I say, well, how does all that fit in? I say, well, maybe the Maccabees realized that like David, who had been disobedient and arrogant, and God put him on his back, even to the point of death, God was doing that to the nation. Israel, because of her arrogance, because she thought she was God's special people, she became careless. Instead of carefree, instead of trusting God, she just became careless, became presumptuous. And guess what God did? God knocked down the nation to the point of death. Right on the back, right on her back. But miraculously, God allowed this little band of guerrilla fighters, Jewish fighters, hiding in the mountains, Come and defeat the great Syrian army that had never been defeated in the world. And they realized that God had done this. He had raised the nation up and he had healed it. And so they said, hey, what happened to David on a personal level has happened to our nation on a larger scale. We need to praise the Lord. So David's prayer about healing and his story about praise becomes a national song. So, I think that we could see that as a lesson. Maybe that's what was happening. But personally, we need to realize, not always, but sometimes when things are not going right with us, because God's doing it. He wants to get our attention. <laughs> and uh, if he can't get your attention through maybe teaching a Psalm 30 like this, he can't get your attention when your wife tells you to do something, you know it's right and you sneak around and do the wrong thing, you know. Or, whatever the situation, he can get your attention other And when he does, we need to realize, hey, this is happening because God's doing it in my life. He's the one that brought the prosperity. He's the one that's brought the trouble. He's the one that can get me out of trouble. I need to do it, and I need to praise the Lord. Amen? We'll pick up at Psalm 31 next week. Lord, we thank you for these psalms that we're going through in the summer. Words of wisdom events in history that have an impact on us today, principles that we can hold on to, that we can apply. Oh, Lord, we are so much like David. We are all prosperous in this country, whether we're making little or we're making much. When we look around the world and we see nations falling and people starving and being killed in revolutions, we realize how you've blessed us as individuals even in this room. Some more than others, but Lord, it was all all you're doing. Help us to recognize that and praise you now so we do not have to go through the difficulties. But Lord, if we do, may we realize that you are our helper. You are our God. It's you who have done these things. It's you who will get the credit. Oh Lord, help us to put these principles into practice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.